who are the smartest people in the world? When a question like that is asked, perhaps we think of people like Stephen Hawking or Albert Einstein. If you ask most modern people in society, they'll perhaps tell you someone like Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins. And the fact of the matter is that for most of us and for most of society, when we think about the smartest and most educated people, they're generally people of exceptional scientific or mathematical knowledge. And more often than not, these incredibly smart people tend to deny the existence of God. Now, this is a position known as atheism, and we get various types of atheism. Some come to this position, according to them, by philosophical deductions, and some come to this by scientific proofs, and some we might call practical atheisms, those who deny that God exists just by the way that they live. They might say that they believe, but by practically living, they deny God's existence. And so, if any of you have ever debated with an atheist, you'll know that a lot of these people are rock-solid in their beliefs, unwavering in their commitment to what they believe and say. Yet many times, as one probes into their childhood or their experiences in life, one tends to ask the question, did all atheists come to this by merely rational reasoning and philosophical arguments? And now, if we were to dig beneath the surface of these priests and prophets of atheism, a lot of us will find that there are deep emotions and hard-held beliefs surrounding their convictions. Take famous atheist and novelist Aldous Huxley, for example, who states the underlying reasons behind his atheism. He states, For myself and for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. We objected to the morality of Christianity because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Similar to what we saw in Psalm 1. Or consider the straightforward confession of another atheist, Thomas Nagel. He says, I speak from experience, being strongly, strongly subject to the sphere myself. I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right. It is that I hope that there is no God. I truly want there to be no God. So when we look at both Huxley and Nagel's confession of atheism, we see that there is something deeper. They don't want God to exist. God interferes with their apparent liberty and liberation Similar to what we saw in Psalm 1, the, the, the fool who casts God's chains from him. And just think about this. Many people in our society today who cleave to their sin, who enjoy their sin, have come to the conclusion that if they were to accept the God of the Bible, they would have to stop with a lot of things they truly enjoy. And so by saying no to God, these smart people are actually playing the fool. And this is the wisdom that King David gives to us in Psalm 14 this morning. He tells us that this ideology of atheism is essentially an ideology, ideology without hope, which is why the title of today's sermon is The Hopeless Foolishness of Atheism. The Hopeless Foolishness of Atheism. We'll be looking at this in three points, kicking off with the first point, being the fool opposes God. 
the fool opposes God. So follow with me in your Bibles. In this first verse, we see that atheists primarily don't have a mind problem since they say in their hearts that there is no God. They don't say in their minds or with their tongues there is no God. It's primarily a heart's condition. Yet we see that the Bible doesn't even tell us that these are smart intellectual people who have come to a rational position. No, the Bible calls these people fools. The Bible doesn't just call these people people who are perhaps intellectually ignorant to the truth. No, we are told that these people are fools. And the Hebrew word for fool, interestingly, is Nabal. And for those of you that know your Old Testaments really well, there is a guy in the book of Samuel called Nabal, who's a fool. And it's quite interesting, if, if you were to look at the story of Nabal in 1 Samuel 25, it's quite similar to how we see fools today. So just to quickly run through this, David sends his servants to Nabal to ask him for resources since they were in the field the whole day. And how does Nabal respond? He says, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? After the fool responds in this manner to David's request, David says, well, because of his, because of his disrespect and because of the way Nabal has spoken to me, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to send my men to kill Nabal. Nabal's wife then runs to David and the scripture tells us that Abigail fell before David and says, On me alone, Lord, be the guilt. Please not let your servant speak in your ears. Hear the words of me. Let not my Lord Nabal be regarded according to his name, which means fool. And because of Abigail's response to Nabal's foolishness, David spares him. And so you would think Nabal acts very graciously to David. You would think Nabal is happy that his wife stood up for him. Yet we see that when Abigail comes to Nabal, he's drunk and marries completely unaware of the destruction and the judgment that was coming to him. Yet the next morning when his wife tells him that she actually spared his life, his heart is hardened. We're told that his heart is hardened at this news and 10 days later the Lord struck him dead. So just think about this. God sends his messengers into this world to tell this world that destruction is coming, that there is judgment on the way. And how does this world respond? Who is God? Who is Christ? And then we have an intermediary between us and God who, who actually died for us. Yet many, when they hear this news, have hearts of stone. And they reject God, just like Nabal did. They're merry, they're drunk, they're unaware of the apparent judgment coming. Yet, just like the fool in Psalm 1 Samuel 25, our world is unaware of what is coming. And when they hear, they have hardened hearts. So what happens when people live as fools in this world? Well, look down. Psalm, 1, Psalm 14 verse 1 tells us that they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. They are corrupt. Morally and spiritually, these people are wicked. And their influence goes beyond them. We read they do abominable deeds. So it's not just that they are corrupt in and of themselves. Their deeds, their acts towards the rest of humanity are abominable. The Hebrew word actually stresses the effects of the wicked on those 
who receive these wicked actions. So when we read headlines, like I'm sure many of us have read this last week, of corruption and abomination, whether in political ranks or social ranks, I mean, these things shouldn't surprise us. These things are the natural consequences of living as if there is no God. Those who live as if there is no God will do corrupt and abominable things, destroying themselves as well as society around them. It's like a gangrene. This foolishness spreads. And this is the point that David is making. Although the point that David is making is more severe than we might think. David is not telling us that these atheists or these fools are just ignorant or that they don't know. We're told that this folly is because of their decision to do evil. It's not uninformed stupidity. It's a constant, lived-out choice of saying there is no God. And so, verse 2 gives us a very interesting contrast. So in verse 1, we see the foolishness of the fool who does not see God. He essentially is like a child closing his eyes thinking that when he closes his eyes, his parents won't see him. Yet David tells that the Lord looks down on the children of man. The Lord sees. Even though the fool hides his face from God, God sees. And he not only sees the fool, but the scope of the abomination moves into the rest of humanity, as we see here. It's a scene reminiscent of what we see before the flood in Genesis 6, or before the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. God surveys all of creation from his heavenly vantage point to see if there are any who seek him, any who understand, if there is any sort of redeeming social value within humanity. Yet, David in Psalm 14 tells us, as we saw in Genesis, that there is none who seek God, none who does good. We see this today, don't we? Just think about this. Just like the Garden of Eden we have a foolish generation who would rather be gods unto themselves than to confess God as Lord and Savior. Just like the days of Noah, we live in a society that would rather pursue every form of wickedness and evil rather than relinquish control to God. Just like the days of Babel, we live in a culture that seeks to build humanity up as the monument of greatness unto themselves instead of gazing upon Christ on the cross and drop to their knees before the crucified King. I mean, Pride Month, Drag Queen Story Hour, the transgender agenda, all of this gives us enough evidence that we live in a society and a culture that would rather desire the things of the flesh than pursue purity and holiness. It's just like before God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why is this the case? Why does every sin seem to be united against God and against God's law of humanity? One Puritan, Stephen Charnock, comments on Psalm 14 and he states that all sin essentially is founded in secret atheism. Although sins may disagree with one another, just like Herod and Pilate were on different political spectrums, yet they were united against Christ. So although our lusts, our sins, the pleasures we take may be diverse, they're all united in disobedience to God. Fundamentally, all sin 
come from a heart which says, I would rather be God unto myself. There is no God. So as we read the psalm, it provides us with a bit more perspective to make sense of this world, doesn't it? I mean, we shouldn't be surprised at what we see in this world, since our world is run by fools who say that there is no God. When they do corrupt things, when abominations happen in culture, these things should not surprise us. Yet this psalm should also help us to speak more clearly. How often do we say that when somebody gives a homeless person some bread, oh, that's such a good person. Or, or when somebody adapts, adopts a pet and looks after them, they're such a good person. Our standard for goodness is so low, yet in Psalm 14 we say that when God looks down on humanity, He sees no good. So this is quite a depressing way to start the sermon, since I'm sure many of us might be sitting there saying, well, I'm, I'm a Christian, I, I, I worship God, I, I do good things. And this is where we as Christians need to realize, just like Paul tells in Romans 3, that when God looks at us, He does not see us possessing any goodness. He sees Christ. We are clothed with Christ. Christ's righteousness is given to us as a robe so that when God does look down at us, He sees Christ. His righteousness is given to us. That is why when Paul says in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, we are justified as a gift of grace. So that God might be the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. What then becomes of boasting? So yes, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet, we cannot boast in our redemption, since God has justified us by His grace. This is why the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness is so important. We have to be imputed with Christ's righteousness. Otherwise, God looks down and He doesn't see anyone good. When God looks at us, He sees Christ. Yet when we look at the Old Testament, we need to realize an important fact about humanity's depravity. Every time the Bible paints a picture of humanity or earth being completely corrupt, we see that God has always kept for himself a special people. Whether it's Noah and his family, or whether it's Lot or the Israelites, we see that in the midst of utter depravity, God always saves for himself a special people. And this leads to the next point of our sermon. The fool opposes the people of God. The fool opposes the people of God. So as we continue with this psalm, we see that the fool not only opposes God, but the fool also opposes the people of God. So the fool is committed to a world without God, is committed to rid the world of anything that might resemble God to him. Last week, Matt told us about the people in India who are being persecuted by radical Hindus. 
when we can think of countries like North Korea, China, Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, there are many Eastern countries where the persecution of our brothers and sisters leads to their own death. Yeah, think about this. In Norway, opposition to Christianity comes in a bit of a different form, doesn't it? Most of us would say that, you know, when we're excluded from the public square or denied a voice on social media or asked to keep our, our opinions to ourselves, politely asked to leave certain meetings because of what we say, the danger in this is that we would rather stay quiet about our convictions. Just think about this. When Pride Month was growing wild in Stavanger, or when there are abortion, big parades here in Norway or in the U.S., a lot of Christians would rather stay quiet, yet our lives aren't even at risk. We in the West are so comfortable that a little social persecution scares us to the point of quietness. Yet those in the East do not even think their lives are worth staying quiet about. And we need to see this truth. That if we're not able to stand in the midst of social persecution, how are we going to stand in the midst of a persecution that actually threatens our lives? Is it that we might perhaps love this world more than Christ? I mean, this world hates Christ. And Christ told us that the world would hate us as well. John 15, Jesus tells us that if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, since I chose you out of the world, this world hates you. See, the world hating us as Christians and the people of God is nothing new. It's right here in Psalm 14. What does David say? Follow with me in verse 4. David starts off by saying that the evildoers, those who are fools, have no knowledge. So not only are they enmeshed in evil deeds, not only are they full of folly, they also lack a fundamental knowledge about God. And many times we're like, yeah, that's the problem with atheism. They, they lack an education. We just need to educate them more. Then they would believe in God. Yet this knowledge that David speaks about is not just an education, educational knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge of God. It's not that the fool lacks education about God. It's that the fool lacks an experience with God. It's like a husband and wife. The fool lacks an intimate knowledge of who God is. So once again, it's not a simple ignorance. It's not simply an educational problem. The fool lives in rebellious rejection of an intimate relationship with God. The Bible is interesting, you know. It doesn't really have categories for people like we do. You know, many of us, we would say, yeah, you know, that's such a nice person. They're, they're really good and they're, they're just ignorant to, to the truth. If they, just, if they just heard a really good gospel presentation, they'd, they'd become Christians, you know. They just lack a, a really good presentation of Christ. The Word makes it clear that this world is in rebellion to God. They don't need more education. They don't need more evidence since they suppress the truth of God. Since God has made plain to them what is known to them in creation. We're told this in Romans 1 that what is plain about God, what is known to be, leads to salvation, is plain to man. 
in God's creation, he has made himself known. And so how does the fool act towards the people of God? Well, we're told that with an insatiable appetite, the fool eats God's people. This again shows us that the effect of the fool goes beyond just himself. But the effects of being in rebellion to God bleeds out into society. You know, bread is quite a basic act of nourishment. It's a, it's a really basic act. You take bread and eat it. It's a casual attitude. And that's the way the fool consumes God's people. It's, it's casual. It's, it's easy. The fool consumes God's people as if we are bread. So instead of eating of the bread of life that might truly satisfy, the fool consumes God's people. So look with me further in verse 4. David tells us that this fool who seeks to consume God's people does not even call upon God. Well, why should he? We're told in verse 1 that he denies God's existence. We're told in verse 2 that he refuses to seek God. Why would he call upon God? The fool refuses to call upon God. The fool refuses to seek God. The fool refuses to acknowledge that God exists. Yet, they will not always feel this way. A great day is coming, we're told in verse 5, when the fool will be overcome with great terror because of something that they see within the people of God. What does the fool see? Well, the fool sees that God is with those who are righteous. Even though the fool opposes the people of God, God is faithful to his people. I mean, we've all seen the cartoon, you know, the cartoon of the guy climbing up a mountain and seeing this nest of eggs or a nest of small chicks, thinking he wants to steal one. And then this massive shadow of a mother eagle appears and this person trying to steal the eggs overcome with terror. This is the picture we have here. The fool is opposing God's people unaware of the looming shadow of God that's protecting his people. Church, God is our refuge. As this world seeks to destroy us, as this world seeks to consume us like bread, we have a great God in our midst. We have a great God who keeps us. And so as this world seeks to frustrate the plans of the oppressed, God is a refuge for His people. And for this reason, I think we as Christians make a really big mistake when we try to please this world, or even worse, have our affections turned upon this world. I mean, we live in a world that killed Jesus. Why would you turn your affections or your love towards a world that hates Christ? A world that hates the one who redeemed you by his blood. I mean, you wouldn't show affection to a world that kills your wife or your children, would you? No, nobody would. Yet so often we as Christians find ourselves in a position where we try to please a world that killed our Savior. And not only that, but we are trying to please a world that seeks to devour us like bread. And so for many of us sitting here, perhaps you have experienced this. Perhaps you have experienced this, that the world is seeking your ruin, that those that you work with, 
would rather have you being eaten up as bread. Those that you go to school with would rather have you being eaten up as bread. Know this, that Christ is in the midst. God is with us. That this world that's opposing you is in fact opposing Christ. He is in our midst. And we have a great hope. Which is what verse 7 tells us. And also the third point of today's sermon. The hope of the oppressed. The hope of the oppressed. In verse 7 we read, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of His people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. So David starts off by examining the depravity of the fool and all of humanity, saying that all have turned aside from God. Secondly, David surveys the suffering of God's people, seeing how the fool eats God's people, yet God is faithful to them. And so now David turns to the Lord and reminds him of the promises that he has made to Isaac and Jacob and to the fathers of the nation of Israel. A promise of a deliverer in Zion. Zion, the place where the Messiah King is enthroned. For those of you, again, that know your Old Testaments well, you'll know that Zion is a very important part, both theologically and historically, of the nation of Israel and the identity of the Jews. Geographically, Zion is the hill on which the city of Jerusalem stands. But in the Old Testament, we see that Zion is associated with the establishment of Jerusalem as the capital of David's kingdom. Zion is also considered to be the dwelling place of Yahweh, where he sits on the throne, his seat of authority. Yahweh rules from Zion, blesses from Zion, shines forth from Zion, and sends help and salvation from Zion. And so as David is standing or sitting, writing the psalm, he looks forward to the day when the fortunes of God's people may be profitable to them. A day when there will be great rejoicing and gladness to the people of God. A day that would come which would see all of the nations in obedience and submission to God. So in verse 7 we see David hoping and trusting in the promises of God. That God would restore that which he promised to restore. And church, how blessed are we to have seen this? We saw the day that David is speaking about, when Christ came to join people from every nation and tribe to himself, when he came to strike terror to the heart of death, delivering the wicked from sin, delivering his own and redeeming us, justifying us, and presenting us as righteous before God. This sure hope that David had that God would restore his people is a hope that was realized in Christ. And this again shows us that we worship a dependable God. God promised to do things in the Old Testament, and we see God doing these things in the New. So when we read God's promises in the New Testament, like 
He will judge the living and the dead, that Christ will return, that our sins will be forgiven when we place our faith in Christ, that we will be justified, that we are righteous, that we are being sanctified. We have to believe God since He is dependable and the only hope for those who are depressed. He is our only hope in this world. So as we draw to a close this morning, I want to ask us a question. Who are the evildoers that David speaks about? At first glance, we all might say it's the world out there trying to kill us as Christians. The world opposing Christ, and that is true. This world is foolish. This world does corrupt things. This world seeks the ruin of Christians. We would not be wrong. Yet we see in Romans 3 and in Psalm 14 that we are also implicated in this, since no one does good. No one seeks after God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So as I was preparing for the sermon this week, something which struck me and gave me pause is that in preaching this and in reading this, we are quick to take judgment and find our place among the righteous next to God and bring judgment on God's enemies. And again, we would be right in doing so. Yet, I think the words of Puritan Stephen Charnock are again valid. As he states that actions are a greater discovery of a principle than words. We all know this. Actions speak louder than words. The testimony of works is louder and clearer than that of words. The frame of men's hearts must be measured by what they do rather than what they say. So, the question then is, do we have hearts that acknowledge God? Or do we merely acknowledge Him with our lips? And this is something each of us must carefully examine. Each of us must carefully examine this morning if we are indeed not playing the fool of Psalm 14. We're sometimes closer than we might think. When we persist in sin and close our hearts to God, we are playing the fool. When we attempt to live without God's Spirit in this world and attempt to live without prayer, we are playing the fool. And when we attempt to satisfy ourselves with the things of this world and have our affections drawn upon anything other than Christ, we are fools. Church, we cannot claim to be the master of our own destiny. We cannot profess to serve Christ with our lips yet have hearts that are foolish, have hearts that are far from Him. And so while this is confronting and requires some introspection, know that it is worth it. Since God is dependable, God is our refuge, God is our hope. And as the title of the sermon suggested, atheism, a heart turned away from God, a foolish heart, a foolish mind, is a heart and a mind that is without hope. So let us acknowledge Christ, not merely with our lips, but within our hearts. And make sure that our hope is in our God, who is dependable. Let us pray.